0: Did you catch all the words to that song? Boy, I want to tell you something. If we ever get there, we'll have revival. Goodbye to me. Goodbye to what I think, and goodbye to what I feel, and goodbye to what I want. Yes, Lord, I take what you've got for me. I have grown to love at a distance and just to meet a few times Jim Simbla. and um, I-, I told the choir back in March, I think it was in March, Jim Cimbla, uh when people join the choir they have to audition first of all, and Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir is probably one of the best known choirs in America, and uh, they have to go through an interview with the pastor before they can sing in the choir. He tells them what's expected of them to be worship leaders. And, you know, everybody loves Jim Simula because he's just, he's just this little meek and mild little white guy in a multicultural church. I mean, he just he doesn't fit. And he just stands up and says, this, this is the way it is. If you're going to be somebody in this church, this is what you have to understand. Number one, Nobody cares what you think. Number two, nobody cares how you feel. If you want to be somebody, then you've got to understand two rules. Number one, nobody cares what you think. We're not here to hear your opinion. Your opinion doesn't count. The only opinion that counts is in the Word of God. So if you've got an opinion contrary to the Word of God, you can just keep it to yourself. Number two, nobody cares how you feel. He said, if you're going to sing in the choir, if you're going to be a worship leader, it's not about, well, I had a bad week this week, and, I, and life's been hard for me, and, and I just, you know, I got an ingrown toenail, and things are not good. And he said, we don't hear that stuff. He said, if you're going to lead in worship, you're going to die to yourself because you can't lead anybody where you're not going now, I've got to tell you something. I get to this one right here, and I wanted to skip verse 5. I'm really not interested in being meek. <laughs> Doesn't go with my personality type. I'm a high D, type A. I don't need an amen from the front row. <laughs> I'm high D. The person that gave me my personality profile it scared him to death. Man, you're so high D, it's scary. Elmer Towns was at our church, and he gave us a, a, a spiritual gifts test. I scored so low on mercy that it, there's none in me. <laughs> and he, he looked at me and he said, you don't need to go to the hospitals. He said, you're the kind of person that will not cheer people up when you go. (laughs) It will not be a joy to see you. And I'm type A. I want to get it done. I want to get it done now. And I want to get through anything that's trying to keep me from getting it done. And then I read this right here. I, I can understand, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are bankrupt. And I understand the significance of that. And I can understand blessed are those who mourn, those who are grieved over their sin, because I know what my sin has cost God. But the next one in the progression, I want him to jump to blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But he put something in between. And I guess it's a big deal because it's in his word. Blessed are the meek or the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if you want to know what gridlock is, gridlock is gentleness. Because truth be known, none of us want to do what this verse talks about. Gentleness and meekness really, to me, is the hardest one on this whole list. But for me to get to the point where I have a passion and a hunger. And I think this is really, as I was looking back over this this afternoon, this is why most people stop in their Christian life, right here. They can admit that they're sinners. They can admit that they cannot save themselves. They can admit that they're desperate for God. They can admit that they've grieved God. And they want to hunger and thirst after righteousness, but they hit a roadblock. That roadblock is we don't want to be meek. Because we've interpreted meekness as weakness. If I'm meek, I'll be run over. I read a lot of leadership material. I have yet to read a book on leaders or meek people. I've read Swim with the Sharks. I've read Win by Intimidation. How to Push Your Way to the Top. I mean, all those titles. And I mean, you go to a secular bookstore and they will grab those books up. It will never make the bestseller list. If you want to be a great leader in the eyes of God, be the meekest person on the face of the earth. That doesn't sell. Because we think meek is being naive. We think it's impractical. It's not possible in the world in which we live. You see, the way to, to... to get ahead is to push through and to climb. And if you want to know what the principle of the Beatitudes is, take, take everything that the world says about how to succeed in life and reverse it. And when you reverse it, you will find these words, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now I want us to look at gentleness, first of all, as a position of power. And it is power under authority. Power under authority, an attitude of submission. Jesus said of himself, I am meek and lowly in spirit. Numbers says, the book of Numbers says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now that's hard to imagine because Moses stood up before the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Pharaoh, and said, God sent me to tell you, let my people go, and I'm not taking no for an answer. We don't normally associate Moses with meekness, but it is this inner quality and disposition of spiritual poise and strength. When I have meekness, I have authority because there is an inner disposition, not of a wimp, not of a wallflower, but of a boldness that comes through surrender and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. The boldness is not in our personality. The boldness is not in our style. The boldness is in the Holy Spirit of God working through us. So what it means in, in one way is if I'm strong in the Lord I don't have to go around telling people that I am if my strength is in God and my power is in God then I I don't have to tell people that that's where my power comes from it's like you you always hear this statement if you got to tell people you're in charge you're not and if you got to tell people you have got the power to do something you probably don't have it Because this is a power that is put in us by the Holy Spirit. So I've recognized spiritual bankruptcy. I've recognized my sin and I've mourned over it. Now there's gentleness and meekness, which means I don't have any room for arrogance or pride because I know who I really am, regardless of my personality type. Now, one of the primary ways that this word is used is for the domestication of an animal, particularly a wild stallion. Now, I've never tried to break a horse. I try to pet him and I try not to stand behind them. It's normally a good rule of life. But I know that there are four things that you've got to do to break a horse. Number one, you've got to catch him. I mean, that makes sense. You've got to catch him. And after you catch him, you've got to corral him. Then you've got to correct him And then you control him with a bit in his mouth. So what God has to do to put meekness in us is he's got to catch us. And by the way, he always does. Then he's got to corral us, box us in, make sure that we can't run, find another road of escape, one more option besides trusting God, and he keeps pulling the rug out from under us. Then he corrects us, oftentimes by his word, sometimes by circumstances, but then the Holy Spirit takes over to control our behavior. Thus we are domesticated, and blessed is the person who allows the Spirit of God to control him. That's what meekness is. It is control, our power and our passion by the Spirit. And listen, if we are not ruled by the Spirit, we will be ruined by our own Spirit. If you and I are not ruled by the Spirit of God, then ultimately at some point in our lives, we will be ruined by our own Spirit and by our own disposition. In 1 John it says of Jesus, As He is, so are we in this world. Nine words, three phrases. As he is, so are we in this world. As he is. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of spirit, or I am meek and lowly of heart. So are we. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, when people look at me, do they think I'm meek and lowly of heart? Not only is it power under control, secondly, it's a soothing response Let me give you several ways that this word was used in New Testament times. It was used to describe a soothing medicine that would draw out a fever. To describe a soothing medicine that would draw out a fever, that kind of medicine was considered gentle medicine or meek medicine. We call it powerful medicine today. But in that day, they called it meek medicine. It was use of words that can calm a hostile situation. Somebody that can walk into a hostile situation and calm the room. Now, many of us were not here, but there was a day in the life of this church. This is where you remember your heritage, church family. There was a day in the life of this church where there was a gentleman named Mr. Height, And when Mr. Height would speak in a business meeting or a deacon's meeting the room calmed down. Why? Not because he was a giant, powerful man that could beat the stew out of everybody in the church, but because he had a gentleness and a meekness from the Holy Spirit that when he spoke, everybody stepped back and thought about their actions. There are just some people that God gives the ability to bring calming, soothing words into a tough situation. That's gentleness. Those who are gracious and treat others with dignity were considered gentle people. Psalm 25 and verse 9, the meek he will guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Not only is it a soothing response and power under control, but it is a Christ-like attitude. I, I love this. It's one of my favorite quotes by Vance Havner. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but it's not worth it. Some of you get a hold of that one somewhere along the line. But I especially love this quote by Gen- General George Patton. Patton would probably not be considered a meek person. But he said, Never fight a battle, you won't gain anything by winning. In other words, what Patton was saying was, That's not a hill worth dying on. Some stumps you can blow up, and some stumps you can go around. And meekness knows when you blow up or when you go around. There's some issues worth fighting over, and there's some things that, you know, I'm not going to fight with you about that. I'm I'm not going to argue with you about that. You know, one of my favorite stories of Ron Dunn is he says somebody come up to him and say, well, what do you believe about so-and-so? And he said, I believe whatever you believe. And they said, well, you don't know what I believe. He said, no, but I don't want to argue with you. You see, it is a Christ-like attitude. James chapter 3, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. James chapter 1 and verse 12 says, humbly accept the word planted in you. The word humbly is the same word as gentle. It means to be teachable. Have you heard the story about the little boy and and he was playing football in a co-ed little football league, kind of like an upwards program, and And so this girl has the football and she goes racing by him and he's just standing there. And the coach, a godly man, full of faith, wisdom, and the Spirit, says, why didn't you tackle her? And the little boy says, I I didn't want to hurt her. In the next frame of the cartoon, the little boy's sitting on the bench and there's a little thought box over his head. It says, I've been benched for unnecessary gentleness. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Turn there if you would. Colossians 3 and verse 12. This is the Christ-like attitude. Colossians 3 and verse 12. As those who have been chosen by God... Holy and beloved, put on like clothing, wear it like a garment. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, let's look at gentleness as a powerful response. And I don't think this is in your notes, so I want to ask you to write it down if you would, because it's the best way that I know to explain this. A meek person, because meekness and gentleness doesn't mean that you never get angry. Paul says in Ephesians, be angry and what? Sin not. It doesn't mean that you don't get angry. It means that you... you do the right thing in your anger, and you're angry about the right thing. So let me give you a little definition here of meekness. A meek person is one who is angry for the right reasons. I'm going to give you about three characteristics here. One who is angry for the right reasons at the right time with the right people for the right amount of time. A meek person who is angry is a person who can be angry for the right reasons at the right time with the right people for the right amount of time. You say, well, I I, I just don't think any Christian ought to ever get angry. Then you've got a problem with Jesus cleaning out the temple. Jesus got angry at the Pharisees. He got angry with the right people at the right time for the right amount of time. He did not wear a chip on his shoulder. He didn't go to the cross and say, I'll be back to get you, boys. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The very people that angered him and grieved him, he prayed for their forgiveness. And so there's a powerful response here. And Moses demonstrated that. Let me just give you a little homework. Numbers chapter 12. Moses demonstrated it in Numbers 12 when Miriam and Aaron rebelled against him, his own family rebelled against him, and he held his tongue. And God said, i tell you what, I'll take care of them. And God struck Miriam with leprosy, and Miriam, who had orchestrated a rebellion against Moses, Moses prayed for God to heal her of her leprosy. Now that's meekness. You know how we would respond. Lord, let her suffer for what she's done to me. She deserves it. Serves her right. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so I want to take you to the application of blessed are the meek, and it's found on down in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Remember we talked about in in the previous message that When Jesus gives a point in the Beatitudes, oftentimes somewhere in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he illustrates that point and exemplifies it or illustrates it or talks about it and shows us how it bears itself out. Matthew 5, verse 38. "'You have heard it said, "'an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. "'But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, "'but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, "'turn the other to him also.' If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now let me just stop right there and say, here was what the Pharisees had set up their rules. There's 613 regulations. And the Pharisees, see the Roman soldier had a right to go to a Jewish person and say to them, you carry my coat, you carry my bag, you carry my packages. And they were under law obligated to carry that for one mile. And so Jesus said, you go beyond the law. And when it gets to the point where that Roman soldier says to you, all right, you can lay it down now. You've carried it your mile. I'll go find some other Jewish person, and he'll have to carry it for me because I'm going to treat him like a slave. Jesus said, I tell you what, you tell him, you get his attention by saying, no, I don't mind. I'll carry it another mile. It's no problem. Totally against the grain of just doing what you had to do to get by And so he picks up and he says, "'You've heard it said, "'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. "'But I say to you, love your enemies "'and pray for those who persecute you, "'so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. "'For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good "'and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. "'For if you love those who love you, "'what reward do you have? "'Do not even the tax collectors do the same?' If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus is telling us that the way that you know how your walk with God is, is not so much by your actions, but by your reactions when things don't go your way. It is not so much how I act, but how I react. And most of life is reacting. About 90% of life actually is reacting to our environment, to our culture, to our circumstances. And he says, in your reactions, this is the way I want you to live. And so I want you to look at the three things that he says. And this bothers me. I wish... uh, I'm going to have a talk with the Lord about this one. And he's going to tell me, I told you... When you're on earth, I don't know why you're arguing with me now. Number one, love your enemies. Anybody here have a problem loving your friends? I don't have any problem loving my friends. I mean, people that treat me nice, people that, that write me nice notes, I love them. I tell you, it's that person that writes that anonymous letter I have a problem with. You know loving your enemies. Who wants to love their enemies? Nobody wants to love their enemies, and yet Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, drop back to verse 43 and look at what Jesus does. He does two things. First of all, he says, You shall love your neighbor. He is quoting Leviticus 19, 18. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. But when he says, and hate your enemy, he's quoting a teaching of the Pharisees. They added to the Word of God and said, you love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. The Pharisees said that. Jesus said, that's not the way it is. What Jesus was saying was... uh, I, from my lips to Moses' ears, to his hand, he wrote down, love your neighbor. That's what I told Moses. Uh, I don't know who the smart aleck was that added in, hate your enemies, but that didn't come from me. So don't you do it. Don't hate your enemies. Now, notice he does not say, love the way your enemies treat you or love the way your enemies talk about you. He just says, love your enemies. Chuck Swindoll says, true love seems beyond the treatment it endures. Love does not need agreement to proceed. Love goes against all odds. Someone has defined agape love. In fact, it was my college Bible professor said agape love is to want the best for somebody else, regardless of their merit or your cost. And I want to tell you something. Only God can give you that kind of love. Only God can give you that kind of love. How can you tell if you love your enemies? Here's the the litmus test. This one hurts. What you would do to them if you didn't think you'd get caught. That's how to tell if you love your enemies. What you would do to them if you didn't think you'd get caught. Because that's really where your heart is. Secondly, not only does he say love your enemies, Well, let me let me pick up right here, verse forty-five. Before we go to that, verse forty-five. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, the Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke in, the the language of the people, would read like this: So that you may be father-like. So that you may be like God, your Father. If you want people to see what God is like, then do this: love your enemies. Love those that have mistreated you. Love those that have hurt you. If you want people to see the Father, now, he says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Can I just tell you, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. The farmers that honored me, I'd make sure that they got right weather. The farmers that didn't, tough. The people that honored God, I'd make sure they never had any problems. The people that dishonored God and blasphemed his name, I'd make life miserable for them. But last time I checked, he didn't let me have that choice. And so he says, if you want to be godlike, you don't have the attitude that you'll never let anybody get away with anything. If you want to be godlike, godlike is that you love your enemies. There's a pastor in Oklahoma, I got a call from one of his staff members one time who used to work uh, with me in another church, and uh, he said, man, I'm really bothered. And I said, why? He said, I was in a meeting, and he said, my pastor just ran you down the river. I said, oh. And he said, uh, he said, he said in that meeting that he will do everything within his power to keep you from ever preaching in Oklahoma again. Well, I put that on the altar after a while. I didn't do it in that moment, I can tell you that. My first thought was, well, I wonder if he's ever coming to Georgia. But I put that on the altar. So I'm standing around in Houston, Texas minding my own business. This kid in his 20s, kid in his 20s, God, that sounds horrible. (laughs) This young man in his 20s comes up to me and he says, "Uh, you Michael Catt? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, I'm here at this conference. He said, I'm so-and-so, my dad is so-and-so, and and it was that pastor. And he said, "Uh, I wanted to meet you Now, when he said, I wanted to meet you, I had no idea why he wanted to meet me. I don't know if he wanted to see if I had 666 across my forehead. (laughs) And he said, do you know my dad? And I said, yes, I do. I said, how's he doing? He said, he's doing great. Church is doing great. I said, would you please tell him that I said hello and that I'm praying for him? Now, I want to tell you something. There was a day when I couldn't do that. But, you know, if I'm going to be godlike, I I've got to do what I don't feel like doing. God didn't ask me to feel like doing this. He said, as an act of your will, you do this. Get this in line. Start acting this way. And, and I, t- I tried to tell a guy, I said, your dad's a great man. He's built a great church. And, you know, I, I guess when I realized... That it was okay for me to do. That is when Paul said, "I don't even judge myself. We'll let the Lord settle the accounts when we get to heaven." Because God didn't call me to defend myself, and God didn't call me to defend what I do or why I do it. God just called me to be faithful through the Word, and He'll take care of my reputation. Secondly, He says, "Pray for your enemies." Now, dead gummit, loving them is enough. <laughs> now, Lord. I was nice to that guy. But now you want me to pray for his dad. I don't know if I want to pray for his dad. Here's one of his things his dad said. I can always build a bigger church than Cat. Now, do I really want to pray for God to bless him to build a bigger church so he can gloat in it? I better, or God won't bless mine. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, It's easy to ignore them. It's easy to curse them. It's easy to get back at them. But to pray for them, I've got to get before God. It means if I'm going to pray for them, then I have to see them the way God sees them. Now, I think, is there a little thing in your notes here for you to kind of... Okay, good. Let me give you several things that happen if you don't pray for your enemies. Now, your enemy may be a parent that mistreated you. It may be a step-parent that mistreated you. It may be a spouse that divorced you. It may be somebody that fired you. I I don't know who your enemy is. But here are the problems that happen if we don't pray for our enemies. Number one, if you hide from your enemies, you lose power in your life. If you try to avoid your enemies and make sure you're not where you're going to lose power in your life. That's not meekness. That's fear. Then your enemies have power over you. And if you're going to walk with God, meekness means power under control, which means I don't have to fear my enemy and avoid him. Secondly, if you try to hinder your enemies, you lose focus. If I try to do something to to hinder my enemies, then I lose focus. And I I gotta tell you, pastors are the worst in the world. I mean, you, pastors are leeches. You give them somebody from another Baptist church and it, it's like a fifteen point buck. I mean, they're just going, their mouth starts salivating and their nostrils start flaring, and oh, I'm still a member from that church. Bless God. We're so glad to have this person from that church. Now they've seen the light. I want to tell you something, folks. It doesn't help the kingdom of God to speak ill of another church. And part of the reason why Albany, Georgia is in the shape it is in is because pastors in this community are not believing the best about each other and are not praying for each other. Because we're so stinking competitive that we are more worried about numbers than we are about eternity. And we're more not worried about who gets what than we are about who gives glory to God. And that's wrong. I want God to bless the churches in this community. We need to pray for other churches in this community. We're not the answer for everybody. We're not the church for everybody. Everybody's not going to be comfortable here. We need to pray that God will put godly men in the pulpit of churches in this community so that the lost can be reached. Have you noticed that there are enough lost people in Albany, Georgia, for every church to be big? It's not just about us getting big or bigger. I want every one of them to be blessed, even those I disagree with because I care more about the spiritual condition of this community than I do about whether we're better than brother so-and-so. Not only hindering, but if you try to hurt your enemies, you lose integrity. If you try to hurt your enemies, you lose integrity. But if you hold them up in prayer, you gain power. When I hold my enemies up in prayer, what happens is I gain power and authority over the situation, over the person, and over myself, because I have to die to how I feel so that I can pray for the one that I don't want to pray for. That's supernatural. I'm praying for somebody that's made me their target. I want you to listen to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor who was killed by the Nazis in war, just before World War II started. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and you, you need to write this down, when I read this in my study, it floored me. I have never heard it put any better, and I have never seen any statement that made me more aware of how far I have to go in this area than this one right here. Through the medium of prayer we go to our enemy through the medium of prayer. We go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him before God. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy and stand by his side and plead for him before God. Now, you can't do that in your flesh. I cannot pray for somebody who's hurt me in my flesh. I can't pray for somebody who's wronged me because I'm going to have a fleshly perspective on what needs to happen with them. And only through the power of God and only through the power of prayer and only with a heart that is like the Father can I ever get to this point? Finally, he says, bless your enemies. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Here's the test. If you had your enemies in your hand... Would you crush them or bless them? Do good. Here's what the tense of that word means. It means to continually do good. Not just, well, Lord, I spoke to him one time. That'll be all you ask of me. I spoke to him once. I was friendly to him once. No, he says, this is a lifestyle. This is a continual action on our part toward our enemies. This is a continuous act of doing good to people that don't do good to us. Bless to speak well of. No matter what they've done, we ask God to bless them. Why? Because they're not my enemy. Ultimately, they're at odds with God. If I'm standing for what is right, If I am poor in spirit, if I am broken about my own sin, if I am meek before God, then their problem is not with me, their problem's with God. And my problem is not with them, my problem is in dying to myself so that I can allow Christ to live through me. My problem's me. I'll never forget Lehman Strauss telling the story of being in a meeting with Billy Graham and... Somebody walked in and said, did you hear about so-and-so? And And it was at that point, or in the the 50s, I think, a a famous uh, pastor who had just fallen into sin. and Everybody was sitting around the table, and and Dr. Strauss, in in his way, I'll I'll paraphrase it in my way, it's like throwing a, a bone to the dogs. I mean, they just devoured this guy's reputation. And he said, in the midst of all of it, Billy Graham was sitting at the head table and he said, you know, that man preached the greatest sermon I've ever heard on the second coming. And Dr. Strauss said, men turned he said, how can you say that? This, this guy just sinned and he just fell and, he, and, and they just went right after it again. And he said, Dr. Graham held his hands up and he said, I'm not defending his sin. I'm just saying that the greatest sermon I've ever heard on the second coming, that man preached. And if you talk to people that are close to Billy Graham, you will find this characteristic in his life. And one of the great reasons why God has used Billy Graham is because he doesn't strut to a crusade. And when you get around him, he is a man with unquestionable power. you, You don't have to ask, does he have power? It exudes out of him. I've been in a room when I had my back turned and Billy Graham walked in the room and I knew something had happened in that room. I could sense a different presence in that room. But if you talk to people that are close to Mr. Graham, in fact, if you talk to the people that are keenly close to him, this is what they will say. I've never heard Billy Graham say a bad word about anybody. And that's why God uses him. Because he doesn't try to build himself up by tearing other people down. And isn't that our nature? Isn't that our fleshly nature, the way we build ourselves up is we tear other people down? But you see... Meekness is power under control and meekness means that I have been reigned in and meekness means I can ask God to bless people that I don't agree with. I can ask God to bless people that I don't understand why they do what they do. I, I, I can ask God to bless people that on my own I wouldn't want God to bless them. But you see, the only way I can ask God to bless them is if first of all I've loved them, then I've prayed for them. Then and only then Can I bless them? Now look at the result. For they shall inherit the earth. He's not talking about land as much as a quality of life while we are here on earth. The word inherit means to receive a possession or an allotted portion. The Greek is emphatic. They and only they will inherit the earth. Now, (laughs) I, I, I lived in Oklahoma twice I told God if he never made me go back there until the new earth and the new heaven. You know what Oklahomans are called? Sooners. You know why they're called Sooners? Land grabbers. Law violators. They were called Sooners because there was a day when the federal government opened up the border of Oklahoma and said, at this point, you can come across and stake your claim. And the reason they're called Sooners is because they would not obey the law. They would not do what was right. They would not wait until the allotted time. They just took off, snuck across the border, snuck past the United States Army, and went out and grabbed land, which in effect was grabbed illegally. And a lot of, I mean, we're we're Sooners. (laughs) We broke the law. I want to tell you something, folks. I'll inherit a lot more land by waiting on my time with God. Bats Havner said when he used to walk, when he didn't walk in cemeteries, he said the reason he walked in cemeteries is because nobody talked back to him. He said sometimes I would be in a city and I would be walking in a nice neighborhood with these huge million-dollar homes. He said sometimes I'd walk by and I'd think about my little apartment in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it was a little apartment up a dark stairwell. Heavener didn't own a car until he was 65, never owned a home, kind of a nomad. And he said, But I'd walk by these big homes with these palatial yards and all these things. And he said, I'd point at it and say, Now, Lord, in the new heaven and new earth, I'll take that one. He said, At times I wanted to go up and knock on the door and say, Excuse me. But would you please take care of my house because in the new heaven and new earth, I'm going to be back and I'm going to have to move you out because it'll be mine. God never shortchanges people who are meek and lowly in heart. Greatest example I know of this is David. Remember Saul? Saul grabbed for everything and lost everything. Saul tried to fight King David. He tried to kill him, he tried to push him aside David was his enemy and when David had the chance to slay Saul, he did not do it He said, I'll not lay my hand on God's anointed. David was already the anointed of God. Samuel had already told him, you're going to be the king. God's taken his hand off of Saul. David could have justified and said, I tell you what, if God's taken his hand off Saul, look at what Saul is doing to the people. Look at how the nation is going downhill. I can hasten this process and kill Saul in this cave right now. And then I'll take over the throne and things will be better. But when David had the chance to take the throne by force, he did not do it. He waited. And when Saul was killed in battle, because Saul violated everything God told him to do, David wept. Because Saul and Jonathan were dead. Later on in David's life, David asked a question. Is there anybody left in the household of Saul? And there was one. And that one was called in, and he thought he was called in because David was going to make sure that everything that was related to Saul and anything that had had contact with Saul would be destroyed. And David called in the relative of Saul, and he blessed him. And he let him eat at his table. You know why David was a man after God's own heart? Do you know why Israel has never had the land that they had under David? Because David treated his enemies the way God would have treated them if God had been there. David was great because he did not treat Saul the way Saul deserved to be treated. He treated Saul the way he thought God would have treated Saul. And even when his own son rebelled against him and his son died and his servant said, we've taken care of your son, he's dead, David wept and said, I would have rather died myself and let my son have the kingdom that he was trying to steal from me than for him to die. That's a person after God's heart. And the only way we get to be like that is when we become father-like, like God.